Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Control Alt Asher. This episode is sponsored by Solvetto. Stay ahead of the game and advance your career with continuous learning opportunities for Azure cloud professionals. Solvetto EduHouse, learning as a lifestyle. Start your journey now on eduhouse.fi slash cloudpro. I'm Tobias. I'm back again with UC. What's up? Good morning, Tobias. I am officially on a summer vacation right now as we record. And what this means that each day I get to plan something fun to do with the kids because kids in the Nordics in Finland, where I'm based, uh, school is out for about 11 weeks for them. So that means you program the kids for 11 weeks straight. And somehow you sort of try to get the real stuff done around the house, laundry dishes and, 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 and whatnot. But what I'm also realizing now that quite often when I'm thinking what to do with the kids, let's say tomorrow morning, the usual thinking might go, well, let's not do X because I've done X 27 times myself. While the kids might be super happy to experience X for the first or second time. So that's been a lesson for me in the past couple of weeks that I'm sort of trying to let go and just go with the flow with the kids and have them enjoy the summer weeks and enjoy with them instead of trying to do something I haven't done before. So that's probably the most prominent update for me. Yeah, that's that's very nice. Uh, welcome to the show, UC, on your vacation. That means this is not work. This is only pleasure, which is exactly. great. Um, but I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Uh, for me, I've been looking at a new watch. I have a, a Galaxy, Samsung Galaxy watch today, number three or whatever they're called. And I'm now looking for something with that little bit more health insights and health benefits. And I must admit, I'm a bit inspired by you, Yusi, here, because I know you posted some time ago about the body battery that you get with the Garmin devices, which can tell you that, well, today might be a good idea to skip workout, or now your battery is recharged, so now is a good time to do workout. Because uh, that's something I'm feeling. Some days when I do the workout, after the workout, I don't feel better, I feel worse, because I kind of depleted all the energy I had left. Uh, so now I'm going to try that and see if that can help. And another benefit, it comes with a GPS and a map built in. So, because I do a lot of hiking in, in the woods, so I can track my hikes. And if I find a really nice route, I can just go back and watch the, the map where I've been. So I can go back there to kind of explore the same kind of routes. Um, so yeah, that's a small update on what I've been looking at. This sounds awesome. I hope you'll find the perfect Garmin watch, the, the body battery. It's perfect for me. And I think in the past three and a half years that we've been doing the podcast, twice the, the watch has told me, yeah, maybe a good time not to do anything on the computer right now. Just go to bed. And then we reschedule these recordings on, on the podcast. Um, a couple of community highlights. Here's an interesting blog from Jorge G on augmenting data governance with Microsoft Purview and OpenAI. This was an unexpected combination of two super interesting technologies. And you can find the link for the community highlights, the, the blogs that we are reading in the show notes. What did you find, Toby, on the community highlights? So I find one which is really interesting and close to something I've worked a lot with in the past, which is Azure load testing. So from Nikita Nalamothu, there's Azure load testing that now enables you to run load tests from the command line. So now there's uh, a new support for Azure CLI, 
And, and that means you can easily integrate it into your CI CD tools and whatever kind of automations you have. Uh, so you can you know, enable this in your scripting approaches and enable templated test creation, things like that. So you can automate a, a little bit more um, around Azure load testing. And I really like that. So you can make sure that Azure load testing runs as part of whatever kind of automation you have in your CI CD pipelines as well in a much easier way through the Azure CLI. Interesting stuff. So today's episode, we have a special guest, Paula Anis from Microsoft to talk about how BCDR strategy can impact cost and performances. Hey, Paula, please introduce yourself. Hi, thank you. Uh, my name is Paola. I am um, based in uh, Milano, Italy, and I am an engineering manager in an organization called Fast Track for Azure. So we specifically work only on Azure, and uh, my team is specialized on uh, Azure Core specifically. Excellent. Good stuff. Nice to have you. Uh, before we dive into the strategies and governance and similar topics, I think I do know but I'm not sure if Toby knows or somebody in the audience, what is BCDR? Yes, uh, BCDR is, um, stands for Business Continuity and Disaster Recovery. So it is all the strategies that a customer has to put in place when something goes wrong, uh, be it just the simple backup operations to the disaster recovery um, with regional um, synchronization and, and anything that goes um, between one and the other. So I'm one thing I'm interested in in looking at because we we talked a little bit about cost performance. Uh, what is the strategy around BCDR around performance, and how does that relate to cost, or are these two things separate? Yeah. Because I I feel just BCDR in itself is a topic we can probably spend 10 episodes because there are so many angles to it. But looking only at performance and cost in, in this aspect, what, what are kind of the high level things we need to think about? Yes, and, and this is a very tough topic because um, ideally when you when you speak with, with companies and, and IT managers, um, I used to say with an ideal, with an unlimited amount of time and money, you can do everything. Okay, but then time is limited and money is also <laughs> somehow uh, limited. So you 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 have to make some compromises, and the, the the compromises you have to make in BCDR strategies are usually around cost, performance, and security. And and this is because when something bad happens, um, then you need to compromise security your security uh, strategies because you might not have, for example, an identity um, solution in place. Where do you put the passwords? You cannot put, you know, uh, static tokens or stuff like that. That is not your security uh, ideal uh, strategy. So you will have to make compromises. And the same is with performance. Uh, the performance you have on your daily uh, operations for your mission critical applications, this might be perfect, 100% uh, what would you want them to be. But then when something bad happens and, and, and then you need to restore operations or even restore them to a different region, this is where the compromise has to, to take place. You have to think, do I want the full thing 
to to uh, to be up and running with the same level of performance that I had I used to have in the primary region or uh, the the original operation, uh, or am I good enough with I don't know half of per- uh, performances and half of performances means half of the cost <laughs> simply um, usually might be even less. So there's this balance between performance, cost, and security that every customer needs to find. And I find that it is different from company to company, really. I really okay. like this uh, this reflection because it's it's like the Azure Well-Architected Framework that we also work a lot with, uh, which has the trade-offs between the pillars. And there are trade-offs between security and cost, reliability, performance, all these things. And exactly this, if you want to enable all the security mechanisms, that's going to increase your cost. But if you want to cost optimize, you have to start shutting things down or removing specific things or downscaling. But if you need full reliability and performance, then you need to upscale again and scale out. So there's always this kind of trade-off. I wasn't thinking about trade-offs with a BCDR strategy in, in this sense, but that makes perfect sense. Exactly what you say. So imagine your system goes down and you need to recover or restore that to a different region or even the same region if the failure is not based on the region. Do you really need to have the full capacity that you used to have, or is it good enough to make the data and the system available? That is a consideration I I was not thinking about previously, because we kind of, in my previous line of work, we had the capability to restore, but we just made a full restore. Whatever we had over here, let's replicate that over here and full throttle, right? Um, so that that's an interesting angle. Yeah, for example, you, you might say, mm, do your user users uh, need all their file shares where they they stack you know a lot of pictures and movies and stuff we don't really care about in a disaster event while well, you really need the shares for your application to run so that's also a trade off to to choose what to restore in in uh, case of a disaster and here's another trade off that i i i find on working on cost uh, governance sometimes for performance customers used to um, leverage uh, some of the best practices like proximity placement groups now, proximity placement group is amazing. And just for um, the, the, the record, it, it is a way for Azure to keep things, VMs and, and, and resources as close as possible physically because of latency issues and, and network issues. And so it is great for performance because it will give you really the lowest possible latency uh, for your application. But you have to declare in advance what type of VM sizes, for example, you are planning to use. So that means that two years in, now you have cheaper and better processors and better VMs, but guess what? You cannot use them in your proximity placement group. So in order to um, somehow work on the cost optimization and and typically migrating VMs to the latest um, models and and families is one uh, secure way to save money and and get better performances. Now with proximity placement group, you cannot do it because you're stuck with whatever you declared at the time when you installed the proximity placement group. You would have to reinstall it from scratch or migrate the application. I mean, not, not maybe from scratch, but migrate the application to a new proximity placement group to do that. So, and and the, the reason why this was used maybe a couple of years ago was uh, storage performance. We also now have a lot more options for great performance that don't require 
uh, a proximity placement group. So this is the kind of discussions that customers should have around their business continuity. This is part of the high availability and, and business continuity um, uh, picture where they have to say, okay, um, maybe it's time to renew my strategy, my BCDR strategy right now because it's two, three years old and things have changed. And I want to leverage all the new stuff that Azure has to offer now in terms of performance, cost, security, and BCDR in general. Okay, so I'm, I'm thinking BCDR, I've always thought them as sort of like separate aspects. Even if I think I deep down internally, I know they need to be together. And, and you mentioned cost. Uh, one example for me is I'm, I'm running a production workload on Azure on, on a single VM and, and I needed to do disaster recovery for that just in case something goes wrong in West Europe, let's go to North Europe in my case. But that didn't work at the time because I had Ubuntu Linux on the VM and it was too new, so it wasn't supported on the disaster recovery capability. Stupid me for going with the latest and greatest. But that got me into thinking that that with BCDR, you have the governance bit, you have the, the continuity requirements, you have the disaster recovery, but then you also have the cost. So would you have any, any insights or guidance on how should people approach this? Should they go with cost governance first as part of the overall governance, or should cost governance come after the decisions have been made with overall governance and BC and DR. So I am kind of passionate about cost governance. To me, it should come first, meaning and, and not the governance um, intended as a saving um, operation, but as a governance, as a control of what you are putting in your uh, Azure virtual data center. Because if you don't know what what the things you are putting in, you're deploying in Azure cost, uh, you're gonna regret it at the end of the month. <laughs> when you get the bill, then you, you get surprises. And, and there's another point to your um, question and to your example, which is the RPO RTO, meaning how you want to be able to restore this VM, okay? But how much time will it take for you to restore this VM? That changes a lot in terms of uh, performance, security and cost. And let me give you an example. For example, you could backup your VM with geo-replication of the, the backup storage. Is this a disaster recovery solution? Yes, because in case of anything happens, you can restore the VM from the backup in the other region where it was synchronized. So it is a disaster recovery solution, but it's probably um, slower than the full site recovery where you just have, you know, your uh, storage replica and you, you just have to spin the VM, the disk is already there, it's up and running and operational and, and synchronized, while the backup will be synchronized to the last known backup of your VM. It's still a balance that every customer needs to uh, understand uh, in order to uh, make an informed decision. And the cost is completely different, you know, from one to the other. And another thing is sometimes I find customers do both. And I ask, why? You do have a disaster recovery. Why are you wasting money with a geo-replicated backup? It's either one or the other. But sometimes customers have this feeling of, you know, the more the better. <laughs> I feel safer to, to do 
twice <laughs> the things that I can do for my disaster recovery. But that is just a waste of money. Yeah, that that's an interesting point. I've I've seen that a couple of times myself in the wild, where you have kind of a a latent environment, an environment, a replica of your full environment, which is stood up somewhere, but it's it's not doing anything. Nothing is deployed. It's just kind of available at all times. So whenever the system may or may not go down in the future, you can fail over to that, as opposed to I don't know using infrastructure as code. You can stand up a new environment in five minutes and then just fail over to that if the entire region goes down. So I, I like this kind of trade-off with cost versus having, you know, resources just up and running, which is, you know, tying into a, another topic I know we both are passionate about, which is sustainability, right? If you keep things running on fumes and there's nothing there, it's not great for the environment either, right? You're going to have a lot of carbon emissions coming out of that. Um, so you, you touched on uh, mentioning RPO and RTO, just for anyone listening in, what does those acronym mean so anyone tuning in understands what those are so it's um uh, oh wow i can never dis get this acronym right it's <laughs> return point of operation and return time of operation i'm not sure about the return though i'm bad at acronyms but what they mean is how much time are you okay to wait until your operation uh, are, are back up and running and what is the last recovery point of your operation. So are you okay, for example, if I use a backup uh, of yesterday or do you need the point in time to be like now, 10 yeah. seconds? So that is the difference between doing things real time or leveraging backup. And another thing that is um, usually misunderstood is a strategy doesn't have to be one, one size fit all. You can have applications that are mission critical that require this, you know, real time, um, RPO and and other applications which are less mission critical and maybe stateless applications where you just uh, are good to go with a simple restore backup and restore operation. So you you can divide and dividing means um, divide and conquer as the Romans say. <laughs> Divided means that you can um, use resources better in a better way save money. And as you mentioned, every time you save money and resources, you are saving carbon emissions uh, from the use of those resources in a number of ways, which we, we don't <laughs> deep dive into because it would take probably days. Yeah, that, that's a different episode altogether. Um, <laughs> but what I like here is like all of these trade-offs for me coming also from like the business angle where I've I'm thinking a lot about how does the business survive? How do we do things if the system goes down? We also have SLOs, like service level objectives, and SLAs, which is server level agreements. So that's also a trade-off that I've had to kind of balance in the past where we might have decided that it's okay if it takes half a day to restore this system because it's not really critical, but we already committed to, to an SLA with customers saying it cannot be down more than X amount of percents per year or meaning maybe seven minutes a month. So half a day is too much, right? Um, and I think that's something that coming back to the trade-offs and, and coming back to these things, you always have to have kind of the full picture of, you know, the restore point or the recovery point might be X minutes or X hours, whatever it might be, but then you might have SLAs and SLOs defined internally and externally, uh, things like this that, kind of impacts that as well. Yeah, and, and there's another cost 
discussion on this, which is, okay, you want real-time um, restore point of operation. Um, how much money do you lose if you don't have it? How much money is your company losing um, per minute or per hour of non-operation? Because then you have to compare this number to the money you spend to have it real time. And sometimes it's really not worth it. Okay, you are losing a thousand euros, but then you spend 10,000 on, on, on the real time recovery. Uh, so it's just not worth it. Pick a, a different strategy that is um, rightfully compared to the 1,000 euros that you are uh, wasting or, or losing once your operations are down. So you need to really know how your applications work and how your business work to do a, a good uh, BCDR strategy. I, I really like this, this thinking. And, and when you mentioned the RPO and RTO, and Toby, you mentioned SLO and SLA, I, I think there was a mention of the real RPO and RTO. Uh, ages ago, years ago, I was working with a customer and, and they had everything on premises. We needed to move all of that to Azure and Microsoft 365, all the applications, all the servers and whatnot. And, and one of the debates we had at the time was the RPO and RTO. And we had a team that spent weeks in optimizing the RPO and RTO to be as low as possible. And once we were done, the, the, the business side from the customer said, yeah, this is all great and stuff, but oh, we didn't realize it's so expensive. We don't really care if everything is down for two weeks, we can still still exist. So let's not do all, all of the fancy stuff. So is there any sort of uh, approach, Paula, that you would perhaps highlight or advise people should look into in terms of figuring what sort of applications do we have? Do we have bottlenecks? Do we have something to sort of get the big picture here as well? Because that often revolves around the RPO and RTO. Yes, I think the biggest work around uh, this deciding and defining and preparing for the BCDR strategy is knowing your application and how these applications uh, relate to each other. So you will have a block of applications together that they make the bulk of your operations. And these are the mission critical. And it can be one. When I when I talk to customers and they say, yeah, no, I have only this one application. Okay, but uh, how the application, how does the application work? Uh, where does it do the um, identity and security part? Uh, where does it do the storage? Uh, so there are a lot of intersections with other applications. So it is never one. It is a group of applications and these are the, the, the bulk of your strategy. Everything else, and, and this is typically decide, uh, defined as business or mission critical. So this is what you really need to back up and, and be able to restore in, in um, a decent amount of time. And I say decent because it really depends on, on performance and costs and um, constraints that you might have. There are, you know, sometimes legal constraints for operations. I had once worked with a customer who had the legal constraints that they needed to restore operations within an hour because they would lose money every minute, every, actually not every minute, but every interaction that was lost starting from that hour of downtime. So if there's a legal constraint, then there is little you can do. You have to, you know, abide by, <laughs> by law. Um, and everything else, so you have this bulk of applications, these are your uh, mission critical, business critical, everything else is low priority. So you have to concentrate on this um, 
set of uh, applications and, and start thinking how they relate to each other, because this is critical to your restoring operations. It's not just I am bringing this VM or this application or this service up in another region. What does it need to work perfectly? How does it interact with the other applications? Uh, what happens if, um, for example, it relies on one of the um, low priority applications? How do you deal with that? Do you have a, a backup strategy for that? Like uh, uh, maybe you need some data which is stored in a different database and, and, and that is needed for the operations, but not so critical. So these are the type of... Uh, considerations that you need to do uh, once you you prepare you know for a, a bcdr strategy and then you deep dive into each one of those so typically the, the uh, stakeholders are really the application managers here who really know how the applications work i, th I think this is pretty interesting and like i'm I'm having a lot of reflections back on when I operated systems and kind of the trade-offs we did. And, and I like this point where you mentioned mission-critical apps. We have a section actually in the Azure Well-Architected Framework talking specifically about uh, operating mission-critical applications and workloads, which is cool. We'll drop a link to that in the show note as well. It has a lot of good kind of insights around these things. And I think it always comes back to the like the nuanced view of what is production grade and what is, well, not just production grade, but what is, well, you know, the most critical applications we need to survive. I used to work with some really large enterprises where even if their SharePoint environment went down, and it did back in the day, SharePoint was not hosted online like it is now and mostly just works. Back in the day, someone put that on a server, it was operating, and then at some time someone made a deployment, made everything fail, it was down for half a day. When that happened, there was a company who lost, I think it was north of $1 million a week for for every day it was down. They lost about a, a million in productivity because wow. everything went through SharePoint, everything, all the customer communication, all the orders, everything, like real enterprise-grade system flowing through there. So I, I think the, that's the importance for me, like the most important takeaway here is determine the criticality of the system you're operating and then plan your strategies around that as opposed to saying exactly what you men mentioned before, just stand up a replica environment, have it ready to go. But if that's for, for an app that is doing nothing critical, that is okay if it's offline for three weeks, right? You Maybe you run a monthly report on that, you know, and you generate a report every week or whatever it might be, might not be critical. But if your entire production-grade enterprise system goes down where all the customer communications, all the invoices, all the orders, everything you have. The company I'm talking about was a production-grade production line company. They had an industrial production line. Their entire production line was hooked up to their SharePoint environment. So all their machines that made stuff, they manufactured stuff. All of those machines sent data back over to SharePoint to their orders going out to customers. When that was down, even for a day, they lost a million dollars that week. It's ridiculous amounts of money, but also quite high criticality in making sure that works. So I love that reflection of just have the nuance of how important is this and how much are we going to lose if we don't have a recovery strategy? So in that case, it's pretty important. Yeah. But if it's for a tool running a report generation once a week and you can live without that report, doesn't really matter. You might not even need a replica system at all. You can just use infrastructure as code, 
whenever it goes down, you just set it up in a new region and off you go. Yeah, and, and, and there's another consideration to this, uh, which is you are planning for disaster recovery. This means that something really, really bad happened into your region. So it is a regional, like, I don't know, an earthquake, uh, whatever you think. So what you need to think is, I would not be the only one changing region, swapping region. So I am now in, I don't know, um, North Europe, and I need to swap to West Europe. Uh, how many other customers will be doing the same? Do I want to reserve? Because if my mission critical application really needs to, to, to be up and running in no time, then I, I must make sure that there is no shortage of, uh, you know, uh, resources because all of the other customers will be doing the same. We'll be trying to, to switch on resources and, and VMs and stuff on another region. That's what happens in during a disaster. And, and this is also part of the BCDR strategy anyway. Good stuff. Uh, I recall, Toby, that we've had an episode on chaos engineering. This was probably a year ago. And I'm sort of reflecting now that would chaos engineering be something that that companies should perhaps look into when they think about the reliability, the BCDR approach, the cost governance, or would you say it's more about just understanding the architectural choices that you've done, living with those, and then be prepared if something happens that how do we replicate or how do we do DR? Should we have a hot or cold standby for all of the setups? Or, or is chaos engineering something that would be a good part of the overall strategy here? First of all, I love chaos engineering. I am a big fan of chaos engineering. I also think that to, to get to that level of, of knowing your application, um, there is a lot of work to do. I mean, not everyone is ready to, to start, you know, putting monkeys in, in, in their network to, to bring the application down, um, especially for mission critical applications. But um, if you do it right, then my, my, my consideration is it can be good for your BCDR strategy, but also for your costs. Because sometimes what happens is you have this weird cost spikes at the end of the month, and then you start you know, digging because you only realize it uh, you know, when, when it's too late, it's it's done. Maybe you realize it after one day. Oh, last night I had a spike and I, I can see in my bill that I had this uh, 20K loss for, for no reason. Then you start digging and you find out that there was something malfunctioning in the application. And so chaos engineering can help you not, not just, you know, to foolproof your, your application and to, um, to make it really resilient, but to also avoid these spikes because you can test them in advance and you can see how not only the application reacts, but how the bill reacts to these uh, different things. Uh, how the application reacts is probably throwing uh, resources at, um, for example, if there's a performance fault, then um, maybe you have an auto-scaling uh, services. That, so it will throw resources at the application to fix the performance issue. But it doesn't fix the cost issue, because then if you throw resources at it, you at the end of the month, you will pay dearly for, for that mistake, for that fault in, in the application. So... Working with chaos engineering can really help you find that balance we were talking about between performance costs and security, because you will find out really what happens when uh, a fault 
uh, happens and, and, and of course to your application. I really like these these reflections and and to your point there, love chaos engineering myself as well. Uh, tried to practice that quite a bit. It's really lovely with the chaos studio. You can go in and say, you know what? We have a bunch of VMs. We have a hundred VMs over here in production. We're going to start injecting faults into them, network faults, you know, latency fault, whatever it might be. We're going to start confusing them a little bit and and disrupting them to see what happens with the workloads. It's pretty fun to do that both in production and test environments. But to to that point, this is I never thought about it from a BCDR or like recovery point strategy. What happens if the system fails um, in regards to cost optimization and the trade-off between security performance and cost, like you mentioned? So that's a really good point. I mainly saw this as an exercise of let's see what happens and make sure we become more reliable. That has been my experience with chaos engineering, but now kind of opened my eyes to actually we can apply exactly the same experience and principles of chaos engineering that we already know and exercise to learn more about how the recovery should work and how the systems will behave. And, and to that point, I've also seen this in production where a system malfunctions and, and the performance says you're at capacity and then you just scale up by two VMs or by, by two nodes. But the fault wasn't actually the performance. It was something in the application causing everything to spike. So even when you scaled out to two more nodes, those also went to 100%, meaning you got two more nodes going to 100% and then two more nodes. And this just kept on until they hit the limit. Uh, so this is actually, a, I, I think the key takeaway for me here is look at how these things, especially with chaos engineering, which again is an episode we might want to revisit in this show, uh, to talk about how does that impact your disaster recovery? How does it impact the faults of your application? And is it critical that you scale up right now? Is it critical that you scale out right now? Or is it okay if the system is kind of suffering a little bit uh, and see if it can kind of out to heal before you just throw more resources at it? Again, coming back to the balance between reliability, performance, cost, security. Yeah, and, and the, the good thing is you can learn from what happens to your systems, meaning that uh, let's say that you have a fault, you have uh, well, not a disaster maybe, but uh, something happens to your application and now you learn how to make this part of chaos engineering for the next test. So you know that something went wrong with your application once, you take that lesson and apply it to chaos engineering for the future and apply it to maybe all the other mission critical applications. So the learning and the, the uh, deployment of uh, a BCDR uh, strategy using chaos engineering has to be a, a recurring process, like pretty much every everything else, like uh, the cost governance, like uh, um, every type of governance on in, especially in the cloud. One one insight that I'm sort of learning here, listening to these these uh, lessons, is that far too often what I'm seeing with companies implementing solutions on Azure, when they think about BCDR, perhaps they don't even go as far as to thinking about chaos engineering, but it's it's more like the approach of, oh, we need to have business continuity, we need to have disaster recovery. So let's, let's uh, do this checkbox. Maybe it's app insights, maybe it's Azure monitor, maybe it's automated alert emails. Now we are set. And that's that often seems to forget the whole cost governance as part of that, 
but sort of externalizing the issue to another Azure service and forgetting the governance bit in there that, well, if we enable App Insights, we are probably getting a lot of alerts, a lot of logs, a lot of data, but we're not really tackling the cost governance at all. And we are probably not bringing any better RPO and, and, and RTO because we're simply enabling something in hopes that we don't have to worry about this any longer. And I feel chaos engineering is perhaps something that once your solution or application is mature enough, then when you have a bit of a breather, you don't have a lot of technical depth, then perhaps look into that bit as well to enhance those those findings. This is this is super interesting. I'm all out of questions. Toby, do you have anything on top of mind left for you? I have a lot of questions right now, but I, I think we'll save those to uh, to another episode because uh, especially I want to revisit chaos engineering at some point and see how that evolved and also how the capabilities within Azure evolved around that. But that's something for, for a different episode. Um, I think I've exhausted all my kind of curiosity around this topic for, for today. Is there anything from your side, Paula, that you feel we need to talk about still or did we cover most of the uh, the topics now? I think we covered pretty much everything. One last thing I I, I may <laughs> I may add is I once um, was talking to a customer about uh, this this disaster recovery strategy, and they asked, uh, okay, how much time will it need to to restore everything uh, from my data center from my on-prem data center into Azure? And I was like, okay, have you ever uh, pulled the plug to your data center? <laughs> I mean, how much does it take if you switch off everything in your data center today to to recover and restore everything? And they didn't know because they, I mean, it's not something that one um, rightfully in, in, in their mind would ever do, you know, to switch off uh, a, a private data center. And so that that was my 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 learning that in in the cloud things are much faster and much easier but also um more dangerous in 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 those terms because it it can happen that you inadvertently switch off something or delete uh, a resource i mean there are ways to to prevent that but it can happen uh, it can also happen on prem but it I don't see it happening that someone really pulls the plug and, and switches off everything in an um, on-prem data center. And what you're planning here for BCDR is really that kind of event. A disaster is the region is down, someone pulled the plug, what do you do? How much uh, time does it take to, to recover? That's a key question for every customer uh, approaching a BCDR strategy. Really good, really good insights, thank you. The last bit we have is the unexpected question. So Paula, I do have an unexpected question for you. Are you ready? As ready as I can be. <laughs> All righty, here it goes. There are museums dedicated to potatoes around the world. In nine countries to be specific, I needed to look this up on Wikipedia. What is holding us back from having more potato museums than just in nine countries? <laughs> Okay, so um, <laughs> as mentioned earlier, I am based in Italy and uh, we are pretty much serious about food, uh, <laughs> also about art. So typically we put art on the walls and food on the table. <laughs> that, that, that would be my take. That's an excellent take. I, I would agree on that one. 
and and Toby, I think they might have one in Sweden on the potato museums, but none in Finland. So there might be a future business opportunity as well. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Alrighty. Thanks, Paula, for joining us. Thanks, everybody, for listening. See you next week. All right. See you then. Thank you. Bye-bye.